are listening to the Mystical City of God in a Year podcast. I'm Father Edward Looney, and throughout the year I'm reading and reflecting on the four-volume, over 2,500-page work of the Venerable Maria of Agreda. And if you would like to join a discussion group about today's readings, go over to Facebook and find the group Mystical City of God in a Year podcast, and there you'll be able to enter into conversation with other readers and listeners. Today is day 53, and today we are reading from Book 2, Chapter 3, Paragraphs 452 to 462. 452. The vow of poverty is a generous renunciation and detachment from the heavy burden of temporal things. It is an alleviation of the spirit. It is a relief afforded to human infirmity, the liberty of a noble heart to strive after eternal and spiritual blessings. It is a satiety and abundance in which the thirst after earthly treasures is allayed, and a sovereignty and ownership in which a most noble enjoyment of all riches is established. All this, my daughter, and many other blessings are contained in voluntary poverty, and all this the sons of the world are ignorant and deprived of, precisely because they are lovers of earthly riches and enemies of this holy and opulent poverty. They do not consider, although they feel and suffer, the heavy weight of riches, which pins them to the earth and drives them into its very bowels to seek gold and silver in great anxiety, sleeplessness, labors, and sweat, as if they were not men but wild beasts that know not what they are suffering and doing. And if they are thus weighed down before acquiring riches, how much more when they have come into their possession, let the countless hosts that have fallen into hell with their burden proclaim it. Let their incalculable anxieties of preserving their riches and much more. Let the intolerable laws which riches and those that possess them have foisted upon the world testify what is required to retain then. 4.53. If, on the one hand, possessions throttle the spirit and tyrannically oppress it in the weakness, if they suppress the soul's most noble privilege of following eternal goods in God himself, it is certain, on the other hand, that voluntary poverty restores to man the nobility of his condition, and liberating him from vile servitude and reinstating him his noble freedom and mastery of all things. The soul is never more a mistress than when she despises them, and only then has she the more firm possession, and makes the more excellent use of riches, when she gives them away or leaves them of her own free will. Only then her appetite for them is best satiated, when she does not care to possess them. Then, above all, is the heart set free and made capable of the treasures of the divinity, for which it is furnished by the Creator with almost infinite capacity. My daughter, I wish thee to study diligently this divine philosophy and science, which the world forgets, and not only the world, but also many religious souls who have promised it to God. Great is the divine wrath on account of this fault, and suddenly will the infringers of this vow receive heavy and unexpected punishment. By setting aside their voluntary poverty, they have alienated from themselves the Spirit of Christ, my Most Holy Son, and all that we have come to teach men in abnegation and poverty. Although they do not now feel it, because the judge delays and they enjoy the abundance which they desire, Yet in the judgment they will find themselves overwhelmed and dismayed by the rigor of their punishment, greater than they ever expected, 
considered, or imagined in their forgetfulness of divine justice. 455. The temporal goods are created by the Most High for the sole purpose of sustaining life. Having attained this end, the need of them ceases, and as this need is limited, soon and easily satisfied, there is no reason that the care of the immortal soul should be only fitful and temporary, while the hunger after riches should be so perpetual and unintermitting as it has come to be among men. It is the height of perverseness for man to mix up the end and the means in the affair so important and urgent that he devote all his time, all his care, all the exertion of his powers, and all the alertness of his mind to the life of his body, of which he knows not the duration nor the end, and that, on the other hand, in many years of his existence, he spare for his poor soul only one hour, and that very often the last and the worst one of his whole life. 4.56 Make use, therefore, my dearest daughter, of the true enlightenment by which the Most High has undeceived thee in regard to such a dangerous error. Renounce all affection or inclination for earthly things. Even under the pretext of necessity and poverty of thy convent, do not be over-solicitous to procure the things used for the sustenance of life. In exerting ordinary care, let it be such as will not disturb thee. When thou failest to obtain what thou desirest, and let it be without inordinate affection, even when thou seekest it for the service of God. For thou must know that the love of God shall be so much the less, as the number of things thou lovest together with him is greater. Great possessions thou must renounce as superfluous. Thou dost not need them, and it is a crime to keep them for no purpose. The little thou standest in need of should also be esteemed but little, for it would be a great error to embarrass the heart with that which is of no account and can hinder it much. If thou hast all that according to thy judgment is necessary for human wants, thou art not in reality poor. For to be poor properly and strictly means to have less than what is necessary. Those to whom nothing is wanting call themselves rich. To possess more than is necessary creates unrest and affliction of spirit. To desire and look for what is not used will be a poverty without quiet or satisfaction. 457. I require of thee such a freedom of spirit as not to attach thyself to anything, be it great or small, superfluous or necessary, of the things that are necessary for human life except only so much as is needed to prevent death or indecency. Let this latter be of the poorest, and of such is patched up sufficient to cover thee, and in thy nourishment seek what is most coarse without satisfying thy particular whims of taste but asking for what is insipid and tasteless, so that on purpose thou mayest be served with what is disagreeable and be deprived of what the appetite craves, thus seeking in all things the greatest perfection. 458. The vow of chastity includes purity of body and soul. This is easily lost and is difficult sometimes according to the manner of losing it, even impossible to repair. The great treasure is deposited in a castle, which has many portals and openings, and if these are not all well guarded and defended, the treasure is without security. My daughter, in order to preserve perfectly this vow, it is necessary to make an inviolable pact with thy senses, not to use them except for what is according to the dictates of reason for the glory of the Creator. After once the senses are mortified, it will be easy to overcome thy enemies, for only through them can they conquer thee. 
For no thoughts can recur or be awakened to activity unless fomented and excited by the images and impressions admitted through the exterior senses. Thou shouldst not touch, nor look upon, nor speak to any person of whatever condition, whether man or woman, so as to let their images or resemblances find entrance into thy imagination. This carefulness which I enjoin will be the guard of the purity which I require of thee. If, on account of charity or obedience, thou must converse with them, for only these virtues are sufficient cause for conversing with creatures, do it with all gravity, modesty, and reserve. 4.59. In regard to thy own person, live as if thou wert a pilgrim and stranger in this world. Be poor, mortified, laborious, loving the hardship connected with temporal things, without expecting alleviation or enjoyment, as one who is absent from her home and her country, enlisted to work and battle against powerful foes, since the flesh is the center of the weakness and danger. It is proper that thou carefully resist thy natural likings, and through them the temptations of the demons. Raise thyself above thyself, and seek a habitation far above all that is earthly, in order that thou mayest live under the shadow of him whom thou desirest. Canticle 2, 3. And in his protection thou shalt enjoy tranquility and true refreshment. Deliver thyself over with thy whole heart to his chaste and most holy love, without attending to any creatures except in so far as they may help and oblige thee to love and serve thy Creator in all other respects. Abhor them. 460. Although no virtue should be wanting in her who professes herself and is entitled to call herself a spouse of Christ, yet it is the virtue of chastity which makes her most worthy and like to her spouse. For it is chastity which makes her spiritual and withdraws her from earthly corruption, elevating her to angelic life and to a certain resemblance of God himself. This virtue beautifies and adorns all the rest, raises the body to a higher existence, enlightens the mind, and preserves in the soul a nobility above all that is corruptible. Because this virtue was in an special fruit of the redemption, merited by my Son on the cross, where he paid for the sins of the world, therefore Holy Scripture expressly mentions that virgins accompany and follow the Lamb. Apocalypse 14.4 461. The vow of enclosure is the wall of chastity, and of all virtues, the preserve where they are nourished and expanded. It is a privilege granted by heaven to the spouses of Christ in religion, dispensing them from the burdensome and dangerous tribute which the freedom of the world pays to the ruler of its vanities. By this vow, the religious live as a secure port, while other souls navigate and are tossed about in the storms of dangerous sea. With so many advantages, enclosure cannot be considered as a confinement in a narrow space, for in it are offered to the religious the spacious fields of virtue of the knowledge of God, of his infinite perfections, of his mysteries, and of his benefits conferred on man. On such spacious grounds can a nun recreate and enjoy herself, and only when she fails in this enjoyment does she begin to feel narrow confinement in this. The greatest freedom for thee my daughter, let there be no other playground, nor do I wish to see thee confine thyself to so narrow limits as even to the whole visible world. Rise up to the height of the knowledge and love of God, where there are no limits or confines to hold thee, and where thou canst live in unbounded liberty. From that eminence thou wilt see how small, vile, and despicable is all that is created, and how much too narrow it is to hold thy soul.
462. To the necessary enclosure of the body add also the restrictions of the senses, in order that imbued with fortitude they may preserve for the interior purity, and through it keep ablaze the fire of the sanctuary. Leviticus 6.12 Which thou must continue to nourish and watch, lest it be extinguished. In order to better guard the senses and profit from the vow of enclosure, do not approach the portals, nor the speaking grate, nor the windows, and do not even remember that the convent is furnished therewith, unless it is required by some particular office or by obedience. Desire nothing, and therefore strive after nothing, and do not exert thyself for that which is not allowed thee to desire. In retirement, solitude, and circumspection, Wilt thou find thy peace, thereby wilt thou give me pleasure and merit for thyself copious fruit, and the reward of love and grace which thou desirest. This concludes our reading today for day 53. We've been reading from Book 2, Chapter 3, Paragraphs 452 to 462. Today we finished Chapter 3. Well, I got to the end of today's reading and I thought, well, where's the instruction from the Queen of Heaven? only to realize that everything that we had been reading from yesterday and today was the instruction from the Queen of Heaven as a chapter unto itself, speaking about these vows that religious, we call them evangelical councils, poverty, chastity, obedience, and for Maria Vagrida, the vow of enclosure, of being a cloistered nun. Today we heard a reflection on poverty, and we might ask, well, how does this pertain to me? Because even for me as a priest, I have taken a promise to live a simple life, but I receive a salary, whereas a religious order, for example, the salary would go to the religious community for the benefit of all the people. And so how does it apply to all of us who live in the world? Again, me as a priest, a secular priest in the world. How does it apply to the farmer down the road? How does it apply to the teacher at school, or whatever profession you have. And I remember hearing one of the homilies of Bishop Robert Barron when he was just Father Robert Barron, in which he was talking about the pleasures of the world. And when he came to this point about poverty, he made a point that I've kept in my mind quite a bit. And it was this, that, well, if you want, let's say, you want one type of car, well, get the next model down. And then he would say, donate the rest to the poor. That was his example. And really, we can see that at work in our daily life. When we go somewhere, well, I want to order this, but what if I order the next one down? Maybe that's making the poor choice, a choice that the poor person would make. And in a way, it's an act of self-denial. It helps us to identify with the state of the poor. And so we realize that we can live a simple life. We don't necessarily need everything out there. When the new iPhone comes out, we don't need the next iPhone if my current iPhone is in working condition and satisfies what I need it for. And so that's, again, another simpler choice, which really then is a choice identifying with the poor. We can make small little conscious decisions in our life then that help us to identify with this vow of poverty, even though we ourselves don't take it. Now go to the vow of chastity that Maria of Agreda and the religious sisters have taken. Again, 
people in the world. Now, I am vowed to celibacy, but married couples, well, you don't have a vow of chastity per se, but you do have a call to live chastely in your own life, a call to live chastely in your marriage that, yes, you can enter into the marital act with your husband or with your wife, but then throughout your married life, though, chastity prevails in this union of the two flesh. And so we can look at chastity in different ways. Well, I watch television. Okay, well, what do I watch on TV? Is it promoting chastity or is it allowing me to linger on something or someone on the television screen? Is it allowing me to be chaste in my thoughts, in my words? Sometimes impure conversations erupt in the workplace. Maybe talking about their love life or whatever the case might be. Well, do you participate in those conversations? Or maybe for the men, somebody tells a joke that's a little impure. Well, do you walk away? Do you not laugh? These are ways, simple ways that we can embrace chastity in the life in which we live in the world. And then finally, I'm not sure how many of you are aware of what the enclosure is. I've mentioned it a few times now. And so we heard it here at the very end of our reading today. In order to better guard the senses and profit from the vow of enclosure, do not approach the portals, nor the speaking grate, nor the windows, and do not even remember that the convent is furnished, etc. And so in one of these monasteries, and there are lots of different monasteries. I've been to several cloistered monasteries. The Carmelites, the Discalced Carmelite nuns, where I live in the Diocese of Green Bay, Denmark, Wisconsin, they're cloistered. Even when you go into their chapel, well, there's a grate there. You can't go and talk with them literally standing next to them. Maybe you could talk to them through the grate. I've visited Roswell, New Mexico, and I celebrate Mass for the sisters. And as I celebrate Mass, I was facing ad orientum with the congregation, but facing the sisters who were behind the grill. So they have separated themselves from the world. Again, as I've mentioned in other episodes, these are religious sisters who say, I am not going to leave this monastery unless I have to go to the doctor or the dentist. They have other people that do their grocery shopping and they don't leave. They dedicate their entire life to prayer. And it's been said that really these cloistered religious is what holds up the church that their prayers sustain the church, and without them, the world would be lost. Think about the prayers of nuns throughout the world, especially these cloister nuns who spend long nights and hours in prayer. It's a difficult life. I know people that have tried to live that life. I have friends that have entered the cloistered religious orders. I write to one of them, once a year at Christmas time, because that's all she can write back. And then only on Sundays do they get mail. You know, it's a very austere life, but it's all about drawing themselves in closer union with Christ. The most strictest enclosure, the Carthusians. Watch the movie Into the Great Silence, and you'll see the life 
of the Carthusian monks and the really the severity of their enclosure and their vow of silence. I'm Father Edward Looney, and throughout the year I'm reading and reflecting on the mystical city of God. I'm grateful that you listened today, and I hope that you will join me again tomorrow. May God bless you today, and Mary pray for you.